TED Audio Collective. This is Zigzag, a podcast about changing the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives. I'm Manoush Samarodi. And since the token sale failed pretty spectacularly a few episodes ago, we've taken a little breather from talking blockchain. Don't you worry, Civil is mounting a comeback that we're going to hopefully be able to tell you about pretty soon. But on this episode, we've got an incredible story that I really think demonstrates how new technology and big ideas can come together and just boom, change societies in ways that we have never seen before. No matter how many fast armies you deploy to scrub the truth from the web, we do have, as it were, a weapon. What happened when the Me Too movement met blockchain in China? You're also going to meet Thalia Beatty. Not only is Thalia our new team member, yay! But her journalism background means that she is pretty much the perfect person to explain how a government can just about stop the flow of information to its citizens online if it wants to. The most drastic way is by cutting the internet. So in places where, you know, telecommunications is really centralized, like there's either a government provider or there's a monopoly, you can pull the plug. And so that means like, yeah, everything, computers, banks, phones. Hang tight, folks. It's Zigzag Season 2, Episode 6. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Last week, you got to hang out with Jen. It was so awesome. She was on her home turf in the Rockaways here in New York. We talked about how public spaces or social infrastructure is an incredibly important and often underrated investment these days in building trust between neighbors and sharing information on a local level. This week, we're going global to places where there is little freedom to even question things like facts and the truth which, even if we don't all agree on, at least here we can still discuss them. Not so when it comes to a country like China and a topic like gender equality. The way the Me Too movement in China has a fierceness of its own, but operates like everything in China within the parameters of a place that doesn't have free press and where there is still a considerable amount of political repression. Jiang Fan is a writer for The New Yorker. Her piece, China's Me Too Moment, chronicles the Me Too movement's migration from the U.S. to China. And the match that set that fire, so to speak, was when a Chinese woman living here in the U.S. posted online using her real name, Lo Shishi, and the Me Too hashtag. 
she told her story about a bad experience she'd had as a student back in China years ago with a professor. He essentially lunges at her to make a move, and uh, she is completely shocked, breaks out in tears, um, is completely traumatized. Lo Shishi's story about her lecherous professor really resonates back in her homeland, likely because bad behavior at universities is pretty typical. According to one survey, nearly 70% of Chinese university students say they have experienced sexual harassment. Sexism has been a perennial problem in China, and it's often been buried, I think, because of the many other layers of social and political turbulence that has mired the country for really millennia, but in particular since the communist takeover. Okay, at this point, Zhang very kindly paused our interview to give me sort of a mini history lesson on how women have been treated over the years in relation to China's dramatic economic changes. Since 1949, when Mao came to be the chairman of China, he emphasized, at least in his speeches, the idea that women should hold up half the sky, that women should have the same rights as men. But this was oftentimes perceived as propaganda of a sorts, which is not to say that it didn't help some women into the workforce. But fast forward, you know, 30 years, <laughs> and you have Deng Xiaoping and the advent of this very fervent capitalism. And you see, really, a resurgence of the sexism that has been a little bit muted because everyone was so poor for so long. But now that there is so much wealth pouring into the country, these older gender norms are reasserting themselves and women are expected to be docile, pretty, and not to make a fuss. Okay, but back to 2018. After that first Me Too story gets posted, more and more women come forward. And there are repercussions. Professors, journalists, politicians, leaders in China lose their jobs because of accusations brought against them on social media. Then you do see this mass uprising that is um, incredibly moving um, to witness, but also very much overdue. But, and here's the but, the Chinese government also begins to aggressively censor Me Too claims banning the accounts of feminist activist groups and deleting posts and reposts of testimonies and other accusations. And this is the part where Me Too, in this environment of censorship, takes a very different turn than in other countries. When an incident at Peking University occurs, a student there, Yue Xin, digs up an assault case from decades ago. Another young woman who had been sexually assaulted over, I think, a course of months, if not years, at Peking University, you know, the Harvard of China, the most prominent institution in China in the 90s. And the perpetrator, this professor, was never really punished, and she later committed suicide. And there was never really redress for what had happened. 
So Yue Xin, the student, she requests files about the case. She wants to investigate what happened to that young woman in the 90s who was so devastated that she took her own life. That young woman's name was Gao Yan. But in response, the university brings down the hammer. Instead of writing her dissertation like she's supposed to be doing, Yao Xin is brought in for questioning and interrogated by officials into the night. In the end, they summon her mother to take her off campus and keep her home. But this young activist student, she doesn't give up. She publishes an open letter online asking the university, why was I interrogated and sent home? What rules did I break requesting these records? So as soon as she posted the open letter, it was immediately scrubbed. And that is when the online cat and mouse games began. People reposted the letter, and they got creative doing so. They posted the letter upside down (laughs) uh, to evade the censors. But those censors in China are very good at their job. The letter keeps getting taken down. It disappears from the web over and over again. Until that is, someone figures out a workaround. Blockchain. An anonymous person um, posted it to a blockchain, which gave it permanence that it could never be taken down. No one entity, government or publisher, could delete Yuashin's letter once it was published on the blockchain. In this case, the Ethereum blockchain. Thus evading Chinese censors and bringing on a wave of criticism against Peking University for protecting the accused professor for so many years and for intimidating our young activist student, Yuashin. And the way that this anonymous person got the letter published on the Ethereum blockchain is fascinating. And it's actually really important to our story here on ZigZag. It's going to get a little technical, so so let me see if I can sort of break this down. We asked Dan Kinsley, the lead engineer for Civil, to explain, since Civil, as you may remember, is going to publish on Ethereum 2. And so they stuffed it in the transaction input, but the way that they did it was, I guess you could call it a little hack. Basically, the anonymous person did a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain with an ingenious extra step. They buried a full transcription of Yuashin's letter in the transaction's metadata. And Dan actually realized that this method answered two pressing questions he and the civil team had been trying to answer as they were building the platform. Here's the first. If you're censored by a government, how does that content that you're publishing um, remain accessible to people that care about it? So the way the anonymous person published Yuashin's letter presented an answer to Dan and his team. Civil journalists who live in countries where they face censorship can hopefully, in the very near future, publish anonymously and permanently on Ethereum using that same hack, burying their articles in the metadata of transactions on Ethereum. It's pretty cool, right? And this hack actually answered the second question that Dan and the civil team had been asking, too. How the heck was Civil going to publish all the journalism on the Ethereum blockchain without immediately racking up crazy costs? Because remember, as we mentioned in Season 1, you need to pay a fee or gas to do anything on Ethereum, which would make publishing on Civil very expensive. 
every kilobyte of data you store on Ethereum costs money in the form of gas. An article can cost, say, $3 to archive. And if you're publishing a lot of archives, that could obviously be prohibitively expensive. So, like, like just to put this in civil terms, like, that would mean, like, let's say Forbes, if it started publishing onto the blockchain as a way of archiving all of its articles, every single article that Forbes published would cost $3. And that yeah. adds up if you're publishing hundreds of articles every day. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Now, Dan says, this hack is incorporated in Civil's new technology, making it possible for journalists to publish and archive their articles on the Ethereum blockchain for much less money. It was orders of magnitude cheaper. So it was like, say, 10 to 15 cents um, as opposed to $3. We were inspired by that, and uh, we built it ourselves. It was actually a very elegant and super easy and clean solution. So we we built that ourselves, and... Uh, yeah, that's our that's our sort of archiving solution now. Jiang Fan, our New Yorker writer, thinks that even though blockchain is hardly mainstream yet, what happened in China with Me Too, and maybe in the near future with Civil, means that we can see there are ways of getting information out there online. For many, that felt like a victory, um, even though there's so many kinks as to how one would actually access it. And it's not as easy as just going to a website. But it does, I think, raise interesting questions about the intersection of new technologies and press freedom and how they interact in repressive regimes. This is a good part of tech, right? It's a really good part of tech. Okay, in a minute, our new team member, Thalia Beatty, took a look at this groundbreaking transaction herself and tells us what it looks like. Plus, she also is here to talk about ways that governments continue to stop people from communicating and informing one another online. The bad ways that tech can be used, too. More after this quick break. Okay, so just to set the scene, I am in a comfy studio right now. I've got some hot coffee. But in all kinds of spots all over the world, journalists are in extremely uncomfortable, emotionally difficult, sometimes dangerous situations, covering war, natural disaster, mass shootings. I used to be a breaking news producer for the BBC, so I know a little bit of what it's like. But I have to say, I never experienced what can happen in places like Russia or the Middle East where journalists can pay an extremely high price for doing their job. Sometimes the highest price. I'm thinking of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist who was killed by the Saudis at their embassy in Istanbul. Every day, some governments are working in small and big ways to decrease the trust or even take over the information that citizens can get. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about how they actually do that with the woman sitting right across from me in this comfy studio, Thalia Beatty. Hey, Manoush. Hi, Thalia. Well, first of all, welcome to the Stable Genius team. Thank you. We're so psyched you're with us. I'm so psyched. So I want people to get to know you a little bit. First off, can you explain why you are the right person to talk about some of the measures that these governments can take? It has to do with the job that you just left. That's right. So I was working at Storyful. I was a journalist. And what we do there was to source, which means to find and verify media and reports that were posted online, mostly on social media. So that means like if you're, you know, in a newsworthy event and you do a live stream, yeah, we might contact you uh-huh. and say, like, did you film this? And ask for some other information that might make it credible that you're the person who owns this video. And then independently, we're looking for other photos or reports that say this thing that this video shows, actually, you're describing correctly. We can corroborate or confirm or debunk that this video shows. And so just to give us an example of some of the work you specifically were doing, you were verifying information coming out of Syria, civil war stuff. Yeah, Syria, Yemen, um, the conflict in Gaza. So it's it's pretty grim. Oof, um, really grim stuff. But it's really important because these places are really difficult to cover. You know, you, it's very hard for journalists to get to those places. And the people who are there on the ground take great risks by reporting. But some of them do, and they post videos, and um, you can, using, you know, satellite images on Google Maps and others, we can corroborate the locations. So let's talk about this. What are some of the ways that governments can stop the flow of information? What are the the tools that they have at hand? So, of course, the most drastic way a, con- a, the, a country can, you know, cut information is by cutting the Internet. And Which is amazing. Like, that's like, is it just a switch that they hit? Like, no Internet for you, country. In my observation, it happens in more localized areas, like on the level of a city. Mm-hmm. It's like less normal that like the whole country goes down. But in 2011 um, in Egypt, they took out the connection in Cairo. And that was right at this moment, like, you know, 10 days into the uprising where there's this famous, like, attack of the camels. They they put the Internet down except for one tiny Internet service provider. Mm. So in places where, you know, telecommunications is really centralized, like there's either a government provider or they're really – there's a monopoly, which is, you know – pretty typical. You can you can pull the plug. And so that means like, yeah, everything, computers, banks, phones. And so that's that's a really big one. But there are also lots of other ways. Yeah. Just turning it off. Yeah. You can block a specific app or website. And again, this is like a little bit imprecise and there's sort of like an arms race about how effective different governments are. But in Iran earlier this year, there were, um, I guess it's a year ago now, rolling protests about economic changes, the increased costs of basic goods. Yep. And so the biggest uh, messaging app in Iran is Telegram. And Instagram's also, while Facebook and Twitter are like pretty much not available in the country. Yeah. People do use Instagram. And for a while there, access to those two apps was very unreliable. If you were using a VPN on a, on, a, on your desktop, you might be able to still use them. But on your phone, which, of course, is most people's connection to the Internet, those those applications stopped working for, you know, days or for periods. And I should just say, like, my I have a lot of family in Iran, and the it's like there are two different worlds going on there. There's the one that is 
uh, the government censored and wearing a hijab and all the rest of it. And then there's like behind closed doors where like, let me tell you, Iranian women know how to dress up. And they post those photos on, on social media looking amazing. And sometimes I guess the photos get through and sometimes I guess they don't. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the most interesting parts of social media is that especially in places where they're are prohibitions about what you're going to do in public. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden, you can have this private life, (laughs) but it is public. Mm -hmm. And all that always exists, people are humans everywhere, and women dress up, and people dance, and they have a good time. I mean, that's just like what people do. And so the idea that it doesn't happen in certain places is probably not true. It just happens behind closed doors. Yeah, let's go back to um, other ways that governments make sure you don't see a lot of that. So when you say, okay, so they say you can't download a specific app or you just can't get on a certain platform, what other things do they do? Well, okay, so they also will black block specific websites, and that's often like independent news websites. Egypt, there's like every single Egyptian um, independent news website now currently is not available online. You just can't get it. Just there's Yeah, you can't access that URL. So the way that people do this is they get they use a VPN, a virtual private network, and countries like Russia and China are targeting those VPNs themselves. And a VPN, just in case you don't know, listener, that means that it blocks the information coming out about where you're located, right? So it doesn't, instead of knowing that you're in Egypt, it, you could be anywhere and therefore you get access to the website. Yeah. And, you know, companies use these. Like, this is really important for anyone doing business in, like, a place like Russia or China. Like, they want to have a VPN that protects their intellectual property. I mean, it's not just activists and stuff that are interested in VPNs. Like, this is a pretty a pretty important technology. Other circumvention tools, things like Tor, which is a, a browser that sort of also bounces around your IP address so that it doesn't identify your location. I mean, so governments will seek to block access to those tools. Can I ask, how complicit are the platforms like Facebook and Google with, if if a country like, I'm thinking of a country like Cambodia, where the government might say, I'm sorry, you can't have posts about criticizing the government on Facebook, does does a platform like Facebook or Google, do they comply? This is the biggest topic. Cambodia being a place where the prime minister, who's been in power for like decades, has way more friends and likes than Cambodians online. <laughs> and, is this real? <laughs> is he buying likes? Well, that's the accusation. And like this, his political opponent has said he has bought these likes. They're not real. And this opponent, you know, it now is in exile in France, but is, you know, facing a defamation lawsuit in Cambodia. And so as a part of that lawsuit has demanded from Facebook, requested from Facebook, like, information. What is the nature of these, of this leader's friends? You know, are, has he bought his friends from Mexico and the Philippines who like his page all the time? Hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's this, uh, there's some very good reporting by a BuzzFeed reporter about the way that the Cambodian government seeks to have Facebook disable accounts that post criticisms for reasons that are part of the platform's user agreement. They're using a pseudonym, for example. If you're doing that with your account and you're com- you're criticizing the Cambodian government, which, should, you know, you'd understand why you do that, you can have your, your page shut down. And so, I mean, China is a, this question about what China is doing and uh, Google is doing in China is is a big one. Also, they withdrew the search engine in 2010, but recent reporting, you know, by the New York Times and the Intercept, show that they're considering going back into the country with a censored version of their app. And this is this big question, you know, are these 
American-based companies going to stand for basic rights for speech and for um, political discussion around the world. That is a very difficult debate going on right now. Um, when you hear, though, about blockchain and some of the this, the example that we had in the first half of the show, which, you know, you helped me research, does it get you excited? Are you like, this, this is cool? Or are you like, all right, you know, let's wait and see what happens here? Because you actually looked at that publishing of that student's letter. W- what did you see and what did you think? Yeah, so you go to this thing called Etherscan and there's a ID number for this transaction. And it says, you know, zero Ethereum to, you know, you're transferring zero Ethereum. And then there's this little box. It's like this tiny text box with this letter in English and Chinese. And there are 300 comments on it, um, which, you know, with some Google Translate, you know, you can read. People are, people feel that this is an important thing, that this letter exists there. And it is inspiring. I think people see a lot of potential in the decentralized nature of blockchain to give voice to, you know, people, to be a democratic force. I would just say that, like, we've seen that same optimism around other technologies, like specifically social media platforms. And I'm hopeful, but I also think that these kind of communication tools, which, you know, blockchain can be used for many things, but in this case, we're talking about it as a communication tool. It depends on how it's governed. And this is a big question in blockchain. Like, it it's claims, not supposed to be governed, <laughs> right? It claims to be decentralized, but you know, I think that um, as you have major business interests, you know, and, and major governments talking about what the implications of this technology are, you're gonna you're gonna have some rules come into play. You know, there's gonna be a showdown about like who's in charge of regulating this technology, and about how permanent, you know, these different architectures should be. You know, Ethereum is one blockchain architecture. There there are others. What happens if Ethereum, you know, goes out of business? If you were able to, you know, use blockchain to store your personal information, like I have my ID, my social security card, and I give different websites or services permission to use that information, instead of everyone holding my data, I can hold it. That's one of the applications that's like possible in blockchain. Like that would be a reversal of the architecture of the web and of business models. Oh my God, I'm like grinning like a maniac right now because that's what gets me so like pumped about the blockchain possibilities. Or, you know, maybe it's not blockchain that delivers that um digital dignity back to the people. Maybe it's another technology, but at least we're starting to to move into that phase where we bring, I sound feel like I sound cheesy, but power back to the people instead of uh, in the hands of these companies. Yeah. And, and this is, all of this is about, yeah, who is accountable for the way that these, stru- these structures or these, these companies are are, are structured. You know, can we hold Facebook and Google accountable? Are governments accountable to us? Um, should, should we be able to make demands about the way that we can speak or that our data should be held? I, I think that's this, this big question running through, you know, our moment right now. Okay, so if people listening do have other questions for you, Thalia is extremely knowledgeable about this stuff. Can they tweet you? Oh, yeah. Is that okay? My What's, DMs are open. <laughs> right on. What's your um, handle? TK Beatty, B-E- A-T-Y. Awesome. Thanks, Thalia. We're so glad you're here. Thanks, Manish. Oh, right on time. (laughs) That was our timer that we set. Look (laughs) at that. All right. This was a pretty heady episode. 
heady in like two ways. I feel like I learned so much and I felt so much actually because this is these are big ideas. Okay, so here's my ask for the week. I I really want to learn something from you. Tell me one thing, dear listeners, that you are anticipating right now. This could be a big change in technology, in the world. It could be that you're anticipating a baby. It could be a big change at work. It could be that you're anticipating a recession, like I am. It could be anything, but I want to hear it. Please record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me. Or you can just send me a note, too. That's okay. Zigzag at StableG.com. To be clear, though, the voice memo is preferable because we'd love to use it on the show. By the way, the show's Twitter handle, if you are on Twitter, is at ZigzagPod. We are also on Instagram, at ZigzagPod. I am Manoush Z, M-A-N-O-U-S-H-Z, and Jen is J-Poyant, J-P-O-Y-A-N-T. We've seen lots of different spellings, so I thought I should just put it out there. All right, this episode was produced by me, Jen Poyan, and Thalia Beatty. David Herman was our audio engineer and composer. Many thanks also to Dan DeZula. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi. Thanks so much for being here with us. I just want you to know that I'm at an advertising conference and I just sang Bitcoin is Blockchain's Baby on stage and nobody laughed. Everybody looked at me blankly. So there you go.